I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kaitel, and joining me in LA as always from back in our hometown of London is my co-host, Joe. How are you doing, mate? Good, thanks, Kai. Just got back from Oktoberfest in Munich, so a little bit worse for wear. But yeah, I'd say all things considered, pretty good. Sounds fun. I'm sure knackering as well, but um, get the pints in, never a bad thing. Uh, as you can probably hear, there is a bit of banging in the background. They're doing some construction on my building, so I figure I might as well get that out of the way, let you know. I'm going to try to persevere through all that, speak loudly over it, and um, yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll do our best. Obviously, Joe and I are both very excited because, as usual, we have a special guest joining us on the podcast today as well. Today's guest is a former player and manager whose career started at my beloved Arsenal uh, before spells with other famous English clubs too, as well as playing in Wales, Hong Kong, and Sweden, where he was once named Sweden's Player of the Year. He rounded out his career on the pitch at Slough Town, where he would then take up his first post as a manager after hanging up his playing boots. He would join Reading a couple of years later as a scout before working his way into the Royals' managerial hot seat nearly a decade later. Promotion to the Premier League would follow, although ups and downs in the top flight would see our guest soon move on to managing Leeds United, where he was controversially sacked during the Chilino era. He since returned to former clubs Arsenal and Reading with his most recent role ending in 2020. We welcome Brian McDermott to the United Mates Football Podcast. Brian, apologies again for the funny sound issues from the construction, but cheers for joining us. It is a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and how's it going, mate? Very well. I'm just trying to work out what you're doing in Oktoberfest in September in Germany. <laughs> yeah, no, it, is, it is a bit confusing that, but yeah, starts in September these days. Um, oh, does it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe it's what they were drunk when they came up with it. So, you know, they got the, the month wrong. Oh, okay. I think it ends at the beginning of October, funnily enough, like around the third or something. That's I was correct. actually, I work at a, a dog park, yeah. hence the, the two dogs that I have. And I was trying to get them to put on an event called uh, Barktoberfest, basically turn the, the dog park into a beer garden for, for a, a couple of days or so. So maybe next year, I think I was a bit, little bit late to, to pitch that one this time around. Um, Sounds good. But otherwise... Um, you know, Brian, it's always it's always great to have a, a fellow gunner on the on the pod. I know Joe agrees with me on, on that one. But really, Joe, I know we're both looking forward to chatting with Brian about his life in football. But of course, this is when we typically get a bit of Arsenal and Tottenham banter in quickly. So we're in an international break as we record this. But Joe, first game back after the break, it is Arsenal versus your lot, the Spurs at the Emirates. Winner takes first place. And how do you see that going? I think it's going to be a really good game. I mean, I'm just worried it's going to be called off for like, tube strike, seems to be the, the rumours at the moment. But, yeah, I mean, would you, even though we've been winning a lot, we, the performances haven't always been great. I mean, it's weird to say that we just won 6-2, but you know what? I think we're due a really big performance, and why not at the Emirates? So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Spurs are going to win that one. But, Brian, I know maybe you're more inclined to be on the, 
the red side of this conversation. But um, what's your thoughts? Do you, who do you think is going to win this upcoming North London derby? Yeah, so it's um, it's an interesting one. Arsenal good form, Spurs on good form. Um, totally different way of playing. Um, one Spanish manager, one Italian manager. Um, yeah. I, I can see Arsenal just winning this game, to be honest. Arsenal, they've got, you know, they've built really well in the last few years. Manager's doing really well. And um, Tottenham have got a, a top manager as well. So, you know, you're looking at a draw Arsenal win. That's how I see that. Fair enough. I think that's that's a, that's a decent um, prediction, but I hope you're wrong. I'm not going to lie. Um, but Brian, when... Um... Whenever we have a guest on the podcast, we always start with an icebreaker question. So we basically ask you something a little bit random and then we go from there. So I suppose for you, Brian, there was a sort of viral moment of you um, singing Knocking on Heaven's Door. Very well, actually, a great karaoke clip um, that did the rounds a few years ago. But um, what we'd like to know is actually, what do you think is the best song that has been repurposed into a football chant? So we'll give you a little bit of time to think about it. I'll ask Kai first, and I can reveal my answer. But yeah, the question to you, Brian, will be, what is the best song that has been repurposed into a football chant? Kai, what have you got for us? I'm pretty fond of the new one that they do for uh, Saliba. Um, but in fairness, I think um, the Scousers have been a bit more creative uh, with uh, taking Sugar Sugar by the Archies and um, kind of using it to celebrate the formerly great attracting, attacking trio of Salah, Mane and Firmino that, that they once had. Do, do you guys know that one that I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. Because otherwise I thought I was going to have to perform it. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's even better. But Joe, <laughs> what, what's your favourite one? Yeah, I mean, it's probably going to be Tottenham one. I don't think it was a particularly original song. It's that song uh, Magic by Pilot, but from Maurizio Pochettino, you know, he's magic, you know, Maurizio Pochettino, that was always great. Um, there's also a good Eric Lamella one, everywhere you go, always bring Lamella with you, um, which is which is fun. Um, I like that too. But Brian, do you have a, do you have an alternative song to throw into the mix that you've always enjoyed um, the fans singing on the terraces? Do you know what? It's a song and it's a song that remains a song, Sweet Caroline, because every time someone's successful, they sing, we had it at Reading all the time. Um, we had a we had a run of years where we were pretty successful, and that was sung constantly. Um, I know after winning every game, that was sung. So I really like that one. Um, I, I like the songs to remain the songs uh, after the Man City games, Wonderwall. I love Oasis, and uh, yeah, I like the songs to remain the songs, and I think that's. You know, every time that there's a there's a result at um, at Manchester City, Wonderwall comes on and stuff like that. I just, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of music. Obviously, not my own. I wouldn't mind uh, some Brian McDermott blasting out around the Emirates after uh, after a win. I know they also will play Sweet Caroline occasionally as well. That one's been a bit ruined for me by um, an ex girlfriend called Caroline. But but oh well. Uh, another story. Another story you've got there, mate. <laughs> Always get used to him. But um, beyond that. I guess, you know, you mentioned kind of songs remaining as songs. I definitely have always loved um, uh, Wise Men Say when, when the Sunderland fans will, will sing a bit of Elvis, to be fair. That one's pretty good as well. Uh, but moving on from uh, music, we're taking it back to football and um, we're going to talk about football in your childhood, Brian, and about your playing career now as well. So taking it all the way back, we kind of refer to this as your football origin story. 
which sort of makes it sound like uh, you were hit by a radioactive football as a kid, almost like a superhero origin story. But seriously speaking, um, Brian, what are some early memories that you have of playing, watching or supporting football that really made you fall in love with the beautiful game in the first place? I remember playing at six in the under nines. Uh, I remember thinking I want to be a footballer in 1967 when I was six years of age. Uh, and actually, one of my big all-time heroes was a Tottenham player, Jimmy Greaves. Uh, wore a number eight shirt. My favourite, my team of my boy childhood was Sligo Rovers, because my dad was Sligo Rovers. He, he came from Sligo. My mum came from County Clare, so we supported Sligo. And I had, a, I had a Sligo Rovers shirt with a number eight sewn on the back because we couldn't afford the number. Um, so that would have been my first memory, really, Sligo Rovers. Um, and look, I, I, I love playing football up to about, I'm gonna, you, you won't believe this, up to about 16, 15, 16. And then it became a little bit more serious. Um, so, yeah, that would be it. I loved playing until about that age. And then it was different as a teenager. And it, it becomes a job and a profession. And um, I would say... That was my job then, it became my job. And so it was different to when I was six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years of age, you know, when you were just running around and absolutely loving it, really. Yeah, I suppose that, yeah, that whole that whole thing changes once you sort of get into the professional game. And obviously you um you did your apprenticeship at Arsenal and you would um you'd go on to make your debut for the club in 79 against um, a Bristol City team managed by my granddad, um, Alan Dix, amazingly. What a funny coincidence that is. But I guess, um, Brian, for you, you've sort of described that moment, having sort of gone through the academy at Arsenal, what, what was it like to actually make it into the first team and yeah, play, play in the first division? Do you know what? I wasn't very good for the first year at Arsenal. So I, I just about nicked an apprenticeship. At the age of sixteen, I got let by I let I got let go by QPR when I was fifteen. Got uh, went to Millwall, got let go by them. I only played a, a game, one game for them, and they didn't take me. And then I went to Arsenal and just about nicked an apprenticeship. There was seven people making a decision. Four wanted me to sign, and three wanted me to to leave. Uh, so I was lucky, really. Um, and I thought I'm not. That's not going to happen to me again. Um, and at 17, I signed a professional contract. And at 17, I made my debut. Just seven, just over eight, 17 years of age. And I remember your granddad was a top, top manager, top, top football man. And uh, yeah, he was at Fulham as well. And he had a, he had a good career as a, as a manager and a player. Uh, and coincidentally, he was the manager. We were 3-0 up when I came on with about 20 minutes to go. Nice. And Liam Brady got the ball about the other side of the touchline, about 40 yards, smashed it out to me. And it was coming out of the sky. It was about 38,000 people there. And I'm thinking, whoa, I've got to control this. And I controlled it out of play. That was my first touch. But I think they forgave me that, the crowd, because we were 3-0 up at the time. So they might have thought, oh, he's not very good. But they were sympathetic because I came through the ranks. But I was always quite well liked at Arsenal. Yeah, by the majority of, of four to three, it worked out. And then you seize that opportunity and it sounds like it was, you know, maybe a bit of a rocky start on the debut, but you got the win and it was onwards and upwards from there. But outside of Arsenal during your playing career, one of them was a loan from Arsenal to a Swedish club. And then I think later might have been at Oxford and you had a loan to another Swedish club. Um, you also played later on in, in Hong Kong as well. So I think these days it seems like there are more and more 
British players exploring foreign leagues and alternative career paths to what we've been used to. But what personally were the highlights of those experiences for you of playing abroad? Um, and kind of were you seen as an exotic import as an English footballer in those leagues at the time? Kind of how did the fans receive you? Yeah, good. At Sweden in 84, I was really well received and I got the player of the year in the country. Um, and, I, and I left because I wasn't getting enough game time at Arsenal. You know, I wasn't playing. And I, I should have left Arsenal three or four years earlier when I was 20, 21. But it was hard for me to leave Arsenal because I loved it there. I thought it was the be all and end all. I'd had a loan move to Huddersfield, uh, to where was it, to um, Fulham previous. Then I got a chance to play a, a number of games, which I did in Sweden. They wanted to keep me. And I came back, um, but I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed my time there. I was 23 years of age. I was, I was single. I had, a, I had a good, I had a lovely way of living, but I wanted to come back. So I always felt I needed to prove myself in England for whatever reason. And I went back to Oxford and I got promotion with Oxford and then didn't play again. So my career kind of stagnated for a couple of years, really, um, as a player. And I never had a lot of, I didn't have enough belief in myself. That was one of my big problems as a player. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't want anybody else as a player, if I'm ever going to be a manager, to feel the way that I'm feeling. And it was like, I, you know, a lot of players, I, I love playing and this, that and the other. But I think that for me, it wasn't, it was about lack of belief. That was one of my problems. I was good enough. It was well good enough. It was just, you know, I needed to feel better about myself. And managers in those days were different to what they are now. The dressing rooms were different to what they are now, I hope. Um, and tough, really difficult environments, I found anyway. Do you think that Brian McDermott, the manager, could have pushed Brian McDermott, the player, on to achieve a lot more throughout his career? Well, I would have talked to him in the right way, um, you know, a certain way. I think that was important. I think having those conversations with someone like... You know, I've recognised myself in other players that I've managed, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, having those one-to-one -one conversations and just, I don't care who you are, majority of players need a, need a bit of reassurance. There hasn't been many players in my life that I remember thinking, um, he doesn't need reassurance. I think the top players do. Um, I think everybody needs that sometimes and just that saying, well done, you're doing well and, you know, and, and that didn't come a lot back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Not really, not particularly. It's interesting because, you know, you think often of like injury hampering players' careers, but from the sounds of things, there's probably quite a few talented uh, boys flying under the radar because they just don't have enough uh, self-confidence and, and, and belief in, in the process. Um, but moving on to your career off the pitch now, Brian, and in, in 96, after a brief spell playing for Slough Town, before retiring as a footballer, you would remain at your hometown club to take on your, your first managerial role. At what point, though, in your playing career did you kind of first consider eventually moving into management? Had that always been the plan for a while or, or, or was the role at Slough just a great opportunity that came along in the moment? No plan. I've never had a plan in my life, not particularly. Um, not as a career plan, if that makes sense. I've had a plan for my teams, a plan for the following game, plan for what we're trying to achieve. But not for myself, really. Um, I'd run a football in a community scheme at Slough for two years. Um, and that was brilliant. I loved it. There's girls football going at the time in the 90s when girls football wasn't as popular as it is now. We were getting 40 girls on a Monday night training with us. It was brilliant. Um, we went into schools. I loved that work. So for two years. And then I got the Slough job. Um, 
and I just took it. You know, I knew the chief executive. He asked me to do it. I, I had experience with football, obviously. And I, I managed there for a hundred odd games. Really enjoyed it. And, I, you know, you get your 10,000 hours. You know, you're working on a Tuesday. You're working on a Thursday night. You're not training every day. And you're going away from home. You're trying to get results. It was great. You know, it was a, it was a real learning curve for me. Um, so I didn't, I'd done my football badges and I got my A license, eventually got my pro license in 2011. But I wasn't jumping around trying to be a football manager. I just thought an opportunity came and I just took it. Well, yeah, I suppose in life to um, take opportunities when they come. Um, but after, you know, managing at Slough and also Woking, I know the opportunity would come away from coaching and more towards scouting at Reading when um, Alan Pardew was the manager. Um, so I know you would obviously as well be a reserve manager and an under-19 manager there. But how um, how did you find kind of that transition from um, coach to scout? Was that, again, how did that opportunity come about? I got a phone call. Alan Pardew, I'd met him about a week before a Brentford game, reserve game. Didn't know Alan. He just rung me out of the blue. And said, do you want to be chief scout at Reading? And then you can do the under-17s as well. And I went, all right. Didn't have a clue about scouting. I was 30-odd years of age. Didn't know what he wanted. I hadn't scouted before. And I just started to watch games and start watching players. I did match reports from him. I was working seriously crazy hours. I was taking the under-17s on a Saturday morning and then travelling up north to watch a game or get as far as I could. Um, and that's how it worked, really. But I did not stop grafting. I was grafting constantly. I loved it. I loved Alan. Um, really enjoyed his company. He was a great manager. Did very, very well at, at Reading. And uh, I couldn't have been happier, really. And I was learning. I was learning again. And that was another opportunity that just came to me. I was so fortunate. And I've been so fortunate that phone calls have come at a time that, oh, I'll do that. I've never said, no, I can't do it, even though I can't do it. If that makes sense. You know, you just think, okay, it's football. Let's just do it. Let's get in amongst it and see what happens. And I think that's a really important thing. I, I tend to get out of my comfort zones if I can uh, and just do things, even if I'm not sure what I'm doing. Sometimes that's kind of the best way to go about it. Um, do you have a kind of gem that you scouted once upon a time that you're most proud of, of seeing and then they went on to kind of have a, a career that they were able to flourish and become a fantastic footballer or um, do you not really see it like that as much as ter in terms of the personal attachment that you have as the one who scouted the person in the first place? Do you know what? I have loads of gems um, and it's not about me. It's about a team of people. You know, we worked as a group at Reading. And we found Kevin Doyle, we found Shane Long, Dave Kitson, Nicky Shorey, Sonko, Inga Marson, all of those players. We all, as a group, we found these players. And, and then Steve Koppel, who came in after Alan Pardew, he put those players together. But Steve, Alan, um, they knew what they wanted as a manager. And it's godsend, really. As a, as a scout, you just know pace and power. Pace and power, we wanted in, in those days. Played a certain system that we knew. So it was quite easy to scout, but we had no money, not really. Um, and we found bargains and we sold them for a lot of money. So, yeah, Jimmy Kebe, I scouted Jimmy Kebe in, in France one day. I was watching a centre-forward play and all of a sudden Jimmy Kebe was playing. I thought, wow, who's this guy? And, and we signed him. So sometimes you get lucky when you're at a game. And I love scouting. Absolutely love it. Oh, I love scouting. I just think it's... Um, it's, it's, it's um, I still do it now. I still do it to this day. <laughs> 
Yeah, some great names that you just mentioned. One of them, Ibrahim Asonko. Joe and I were fortunate enough to, to chat with on the podcast uh, the other day. A, a great guy and a great, great central defender alongside Inga Morrison, another one of those uh, names that you, you've mentioned. Um, yeah, but, great guys. Yeah, very good lads. He's, um, I think he was in Senegal at the time. I know he kind of splits his time between uh, there and Belgium uh, these days, does, does Ibrahim. Still involved in football and kind of actually involved in quite a cool project where he's going to be... Um, founding a club back in Senegal with a former Newcastle striker, Papi Stembasise. So best of luck to those guys as the uh, builders make a lot of noise. Um, but besides Alan Pardew, Brian, who was the one to bring you to Reading in the first place, uh, you would have worked alongside and kind of uh, uh, under the likes of Steve Koppel, who you mentioned. Uh, likewise, Brendan Rogers was around too. So I'm assuming that kind of the environment for Reading's coaches at the time must have been a really positive one, given all of the success that you guys have gone on to have. Um, but is there something in someone rather, I should say, in particular during these years that you learned the most from someone alongside you at Reading or somebody else in the game? No, I got I got I got something from everybody. You know, Nigel Gibbs was my coach. He worked with me and a brilliant guy. Um, Nick Hammond, director of football, great guy. Steve Koppel, just Fabulous manager. I learned such a lot from him. Alan, I learned a lot from Brendan, obviously. Look what Brendan's done. His career is amazing. I worked with Brendan for about eight years at Reading. Um, we did the 17s together and he eventually would, he took the 19s eventually. And then he went off to Chelsea, he went off to Watford, so to Swansea. He obviously had a spell at Reading for a short period of time. So at Reading, at Reading over 13 years from 2000 to 2013 had four managers. Um, and, and, and the stability at the football club was absolutely incredible. And that's where the success came from. And, you know, we had great lads and good characters. That's why we were so successful. And it's been rocky at Reading for the last period of time. And then now, Reading have got Paul in, so I know he's a great guy. Mark Bowen, who I know is a real football man, good guy, good guy around the place, knows what he's doing. Brian Carey does the scouting. So they've gone back to what we were about years ago. So I'm watching their results now and I'm thinking, you know what? They've got a little chance now. Um, they're doing what we used to do back in the day and it's lovely to see. Yeah, you're right. Um, Reading are certainly back on the up, although it sounds like there are rumours they might be doing too well because Paul Ince might be wanted by Cardiff. But I guess we'll have to wait and see um what happens there but um back to you and Reading so I know you'd obviously been at Reading a while but in 2009 you would become the permanent manager of the first team um, and actually Simon Church would score in your debut match I think again against Bristol City um ironically um Simon Church a guy we've also interviewed recently but um I guess my question for you Brian Brian even is um having been at the club for a while not in that manager role maybe knowing the players um did you kind of have to change your personality at all when you became the first team coach or did you not actually have too much to do with the first team players up until that point? How was it for you personally making that transition to first team manager? Fine. I had plenty to do with them. You know, I used to, I scouted most of them, a lot of them, and I talked to them all the time. And a lot of the young lads like Churchy, Jem Carrigan, Hal Canoe, Alex Pierce, they all came through the ranks. And, uh, you know, they're academy players. So I'd work with all of those players. So I knew them all. Um, did I have to change my personality? Not really. Um, I, I, I just, I was me. And I just did what I thought I had to do. We, we, we were like second bottom in the league, four points adrift in December 2009. And uh, we got ourselves to eighth in the league in the quarterfinal of the cup. And uh, just fab, great, great bunch of lads. 
great. Just same same format again. You know, we went we played a certain way. The players knew exactly what their jobs were. The coaching staff were excellent, led by Nigel, Nigel Gibson, Carl Allaby, our fitness coach. Physios were good. Everyone was on the same, um, had the same agenda. Um, and, and I just loved working with those boys. They were just really good people. And I always think, I always think when you're scouting a player, scout the person first uh, before the players. Find out about the person. I mean, I've been talking to a, a company just recently you know, and, and when you're scouting nowadays, you know, the first thing your scout looks at the player and what she can do. And then you've got your analytics department who looks at the, the physical data, who looks at the mental data, you know, and there's a company that are doing stuff at the moment. I've really got an interest in I'm, I'm meeting someone actually soon to talk about that, talk about the mental side of it, because everyone goes on about the mental side of football is how important it is, but no one's doing enough about it. There's not enough known about it and there's not enough stuff being done about that but for me that's so important really really important the character and coachability of players yeah kind of full circle about what you were talking about with your own career and perhaps mm. lack of confidence um and you touched on uh, some of the cup success that you had at reading so on reading's impressive fa cup runs um i think it was the 09 10 season and then 10 11 where they knocked out some premier league sides including liverpool um in 2010 why do you think you guys were as a team um, and as a group so successful in cup competitions during this time, um, did you take a pretty drastically different approach to the kind of week in week out slog of, of um, the league football? Um, yeah, what do you put that success down to? No idea. We went to, we went to Plymouth the week before we were playing against uh, Liverpool. We got smashed 4-1 at Plymouth, could have been 10. We were hopeless. This is my third game in charge of a care, as a caretaker. So my first two results were draw, draw, defeat, but a proper defeat, like we really got well beat. Next game, Liverpool at home, we draw 1-1. One, one. Next game, Newcastle at home, game was called off. I thought, what a godsend, because we weren't going to beat Newcastle at that time. Then we had to go up to Anfield. And we took on, um, we deserved to win at Anfield that night. That was the funny thing about it. And that was the kickstart. That kickstarted our um, our league form, really. So I don't know what the answer to that question is, uh, but it happened. The following year, we had the same sort of thing. We got beat by Manchester City in the quarterfinal. And the following year, the year we went up, we got knocked out in the third round by Stevenage at home. And that was the year we won the league. So what does that tell you? Sometimes I guess these things just uh, just happen like that. You can't really make any sense of it necessarily. But if you can maybe put your finger on that promotion season, um, obviously, you know, across, uh, what is it, 46 games in the championship, um, it's not just luck that gets you over the line at the end of the day. What, what were you and the, the, the squad able to um, kind of inspire amongst each, each other that really pushed you towards promotion? You need a bit of luck, but it wasn't luck. I mean, you, you, if you if you win the league, it's not luck. I mean, the first seven year, first seven games, you've got to remember we got beaten in the playoff final the year before, so we we lose in May, May the thirtieth, two thousand and eleven, or whatever it was. Not that I remember that game too much, but I do. We get beat four two, and then we can't win a game. You know, five games out of seven. And this day and age, I get sacked. Um, anyway, we started to win. We started to win. And we just got a great bunch. We lost our captain. We lost our other centre-half. We lost Shane Long. We lost... And we replaced those players, which we got... We got £11 million for those players. And we replaced them with a £1 million worth of players. Casper Gorkis, Adam Lafonda. We made a big difference. 
And we started to really get going around November, got to about December, January. We needed another player and we bought Jason Robertson and he really kick-started us again. And then we started to win. I think we, we out of the last, I don't know, 19 games, we probably won 17 of them. Incredible, really. So it was just a great, great bunch of lads again. And we just felt we were going to win every game. And I felt we were going to win every game. And that's the key, really. Uh, and, and I told the lads, we're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. Just keep if hanging there. If it's nil nil after 18 minutes, great. We're going to win. And we generally did. Yeah, well, I mean, 17 wins out of 19 at the end. And yeah, certainly suggests that. Um, and obviously, you'd get promoted. You'd go up to the Premier League. And obviously, getting up to the Premier League, the standard is obviously significantly um, better even though the championship's a good league and it would be a tough year. But obviously in the January 2013, you'd actually win manager of the month, um, mm. well, in January. And then, um, as you know, as a manager in these times, even that wouldn't be enough because just a couple of months later, um, Anton Zingarevich would relieve you of your duties. I mean, obviously this is nearly 10 years ago now, but do you still look back on that moment and feel frustration that you didn't get the chance to see the season out and really try and keep reading up? I mean, was, was that something you expected in March to be relieved of your duties? No, I wasn't. I was shocked because I would have been told we didn't have the finances for some reason to, to really um, spend a lot of money when we got to the Premiership. Um, so we did the best we could and the lads did, the lads did fine. We were still in with a shout with nine games to go. Um, in January, we did really, really well. I got manager of the month. Alan Fonda got player of the month. Four games later, we lost four on a spin. And there were two games we lost, one against Wigan, one against Villa at home, both at home. And I think that triggered the, the, the owner and he made that decision. And um, yeah, I was, um, I, I was shocked. Um, I didn't know it was coming. And then on the, on the day, I, I was like, for a couple of days, it was a shock. And then, you know, what do you do? You just have to move on. Um, and obviously, Nigel Hadkins came in. He's a really good man, good manager. Uh, got a lot of respect for Nigel. He uh, he couldn't keep the team up. And I, I was gutted for the team, really, to be honest. And uh, it was such a shame. It really was because didn't, I didn't want it to end like that because I've been there for such a long time. And I, and I, had, a, I had a lot of good times at Reading. Just jumping back ever so slightly before we do move on a bit from uh, Reading, there's one game in particular um, that I have to ask you about, and that would be, of course, the uh, the League Cup game against Arsenal, the 5-7. Just an insane game of football. I can remember watching it. Um, again, given in particular that you would have personal ties, obviously, to Reading at the time, but then beyond that, to, to Arsenal as well. What, what, what type of experience was that like for you from the sidelines? Um, yeah, it was great. I was well pleased. <laughs> <laughs> you and everybody else asked me this question people actually say to me were you involved in that game and Arsenal won 7-5 I went yeah I was on the line with Arsenal um, do you know what it was 4-0 up and we could have been 5 or 6 up and um, they scored just before half time I thought oh this isn't good and I had a funny feeling it, weren't, it wasn't good but having said that we controlled the game alright 4-2 late on I don't know what the referee was doing he must have played another 10 minutes overtime. And they scored two really late goals and they thought it was a replay. Two of their players threw their shirts into the, into the crowd. Um, anyway, they got to 5-4. Then we got back to 5-5. Five, five. 
It's unbelievable game of football. Absolutely. And I had to go out the, the following night. I had to meet the chairman, the, the owner in London. And everyone was coming up saying, what about last night? And I'm thinking, well, get me off this planet. I do not want to speak about this. Having said that, so many people remember that game. It was live on the TV. It was a great game of football. Um, it, I just wish it was us seven and Arsenal five at that time, but it wasn't meant to be. Oh, oh well, I'll um, pretend to be disappointed in, in the result of that game, I guess, for now. But, um, Brian, um, you managed Leeds, of course, during the what I would refer to as chaotic reign of uh, Massimo Cellino. So how, how different an experience was it working with an owner like this compared to previous ones? Well, I'd worked with Medeski, Sir John Medeski. was the best owner I've ever worked with. And then Anton Zingarevic came in and things were different. And he did things his way. And then I worked with a group of owners that came from the UAE in Leeds, when I was at Leeds. And we were going on okay. The team needed a lot of work, but we were actually at Christmas time. If we'd have beaten Blackpool, we'd have gone to fourth in the league. Um, and then Massimo turned up. And the first thing I saw was in an Italian paper, manager eater, headline manager eater. I thought, well, that doesn't bode well. Um, so I got that translated, this headline. So he'd sacked 23 managers in about, I don't know, a very short period of time. I met him for the first time and we had a run of games where we didn't do well. You know, we, we lost in the cup to Rochdale. We lost, we got hammered against Sheffield Wednesday and he didn't own the club. He sacked me on January the 31st. I think we we're about 10th in the league. We were slipping down a bit, um, but he didn't own the club. So he couldn't sack me. Then he reinstated me the following week. But I knew, my, I knew the writing was on the wall at the time. And I got the last five games, everything settled down. The last five games I was at least, we won three, lost one and drew one. Uh, but it was finished. He, he, he wanted to bring his own guy in, which was up to him. Difficult, very difficult time for me, personally and professionally, that was. Um, got a lot of time for Leeds fans, a lot of time for Leeds as a club. And it's not until you work there you realise how massive it is. It's a big, big club. Um, it's right up there with the, you know, when you look at the 70s and and I used to sort of know Eddie Gray and people like that and, and Norman Hunter and Peter, Peter Lorimer. Great people, really, really good people. I really embraced living up there. It was, um, it was an interesting time for me and I, I've got a lot of time for the fans there and, and the football club and it's nice to see them back in the Premier League. Really wonderful to see them back there. Yeah, obviously a huge club and I imagine a great honour. Um... To have managed them, as you were saying there, albeit under yeah, very um, very uh, chaotic owner. But I guess that's that's an example of a, I guess, an opportunity you had that you took. Are there any um, are there any opportunities you had during your career to manage teams that you didn't take and perhaps regret at this point? No, um, well, it's, it's interesting with the Leeds thing because even when it was going wrong, there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, and I was trying to front up with the press conferences and be honest. And I think because I did that. Um, I think in that part of the world, if you're honest and you're trying to be up front with people, they're okay with that. And that's what I've, that's always been fed back to me. I could have I could have gone to Bolton after Leeds. I could have gone to Blackpool after Leeds. You know, the one the, the, the one and I've said this many many times. Country that I wanted I, I I wanted to manage was the Republic of Ireland. You know, that would have been my dream. Um, I played for England at 17, and at those days, you know, Donnell told me you have to play for England and this is how it was. Uh, mum and dad are Irish, and I, you know, I regret that decision to this day. But you know, 
But in 2013, I think I was down to the last three to get that job. But I'd already signed for Leeds on a three-year contract. So there's no way that I could have walked out on Leeds and those supporters at that time. It would have been wrong. But I think Martin O'Neill, Mick McCarthy and myself. So that would have been, that would be my regret about management, really, about not having the chance to do that, managing what I regard as my country, really. So, um, but that's, that's kind of how it is, really. Um, and there's, you know, listen, you're a 17-year-old boy. I didn't, know what, I didn't know anything at the time. Um, but um, yeah, that would be the one I think. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think yeah, the the opportunity to, as you said, manage your country, I'm sure, would have been absolutely fantastic. But you know, you manage some great clubs um, either way, which is great. And speaking of one of those clubs, um, obviously we've spoken about them a bit already. Reading, um, you would have you were there for a long time in your first spell, and then you would go back um, and manage them again. Quite a weird season for Reading. They started off really well. I know Steve Clark had been there and was linked with the Fulham job, I think. And then it all kind of went wrong after that. And then there was even another manager, I think, before you um, come, come back to the, what was then the Majeski Stadium. This time, obviously, only a only a short spell at the club. Um, presumably, was it a, a, probably even a different ownership at that point, too? I mean, um, when when you look back on that second spell at Reading, what was it just was it um how, how do I put this do you, do you feel it was a mistake to join them given that it felt quite unstable at the time or do you think it was just the team and the setup was had changed from that first time you being there a lot of things had changed I left Arsenal I was an international scout at Arsenal I was traveling all over I love my job and I wouldn't have gone back unless it was a club that was close to my heart and obviously Reading was um and you know what? I was there for four months, literally four and a bit months. Um, and then they decided to make a change. But I was t- we had a lot of loan players and I was told by the owners basically to t- not play the loan players, play the younger players and try and get them and then build a team in the summer. And I was looking to bring in eight or nine players, but they brought Yapstam in at the time. They made that decision um, and that was it really. And- I've got no hard feelings about that. It was one of those things. There was no massive damage done. People say, do you regret going back? No, I haven't got any regrets about that. It's what, it's what happened. Um, I've still got great affinity to Reading. We went back recently with a 150-year game after. Reading is an old club now. Steve Coppel's team played my team. And it was lovely. The atmosphere was fantastic. We all had a lovely time. Steve's team, my team, all the players get together. And it was just wonderful, really wonderful. So... It was, a, it was a short period of time, and then I went back to Arsenal again. So, you know, there was no damage done in my eyes, really. And I look at the results now, and, and I think, you know, like Paul says, Paul is talking about making sure they stay in that league this year, because I know the restraints that they've been under, the financial restraints and all the difficulties that they've had to work under. So I agree with Paul, you know, make sure they stay in this league and then maybe next year can have a go. It might have the, they might be out of financial fair play problems and hopefully they can have a real good go at it again. But he's doing a great job at the moment. They all are ready. Since um, Arsenal, I know you, you've mentioned that, you, you know, you're still actively scouting these days. I, I don't know if that's formally for, uh, for a, cl- a club or, or, or not. And you also mentioned kind of an upcoming meeting with this um, company that kind of revolves around the psychological side of, of, of the sport. Do you have any offers on the table? Have you recently been given offers with regards to scouting or, or management? Sort of what are things looking like for you these days? 
I do a lot of stuff for myself. Um, I do I do presentations at the moment. I've done some for the League Managers Association. I'm doing a mentoring course for the League Managers Association to manage uh, uh, to to mentor managers. Um, I love doing my presentation. It's called um, Winning, Losing, Mental Health and Finding Balance, which is really important to me. And uh, I, I can do that to companies, to football clubs, to boys clubs, girls clubs, whoever. For me, it's important to just get a message out there. And the message that I've learned over, and it's basically a, a year in my life from losing the playoff final to winning promotion to the Premier League and a bit more. And all that entails and that all, all the stuff that that entails and all the lessons that I've learned and and finding a balance in my life, really. And, you know, I've got a balance in my life now, thank God. So I love doing those presentations and, and I'm working on building that up really more than anything at the moment. Fantastic. Well, I think, yeah, like you said a bit earlier in this podcast about scouting the, the player first, the person first, in fact, that's a... That's a, a very transferable skill, not just to football, but to many things elsewhere. So I think it's yeah, it's great that your um kind of your your teachings are going beyond the beautiful game. And um, but I think actually at that point, Brian, we will um wrap this up. So it's been a a real pleasure speaking to you. A big thank you um from both Kai and myself. Um and we hope you've enjoyed being on the podcast, but also for our listeners. Um, I don't know if you're on social media or not, but I'll all I guess really what's left to say, Brian, is what is the best way um our listeners can keep up to date with um all things Brian McDermott. I'm on LinkedIn now. Someone told me to get onto LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on anything else, but I'm on LinkedIn. So I go onto LinkedIn and uh put some stuff on there because got quite a lot of people now but over 500 people that's not a lot is it is that a lot i don't know i'm sure it's not it's a decent tally it's a decent tally for sure <laughs> i'm sure it's not i mean i have i've got a friend who's got like millions and millions on instagram and twitter and stuff but i don't do that not yet so we'll see um yeah linkedin really for me is, is what i is it's, it's on there really Right, Instagram and Twitter coming coming soon. Um, thanks again, Brian. Um, really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, best of luck with everything that you're, you're up to. Um, as far as our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe wherever it is that you like to stream your favorite podcasts. Just search for United Mates Football Podcast. Probably should have had Joe do this bit given the, the, the background noise. But anyway, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, our handle is at United Mates FP. If you feel like putting some faces to these voices, then you can find us on YouTube. Look for United Mates Football Podcast and don't forget to subscribe while you're at it. For all of the content I've referenced and more in one place, check out our website, unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.